0: Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashin. Thank you for tuning in today. Our guest today is Bill Benson. He interviews Holocaust survivors for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum right here in Washington, D.C. In Bill's first-person series, each survivor recalls his or her own journey, providing a living history of the events of the Shoah. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. Glad to be here. It, it might seem self-evident, but I think it's important to, to ask you at the outset. Tell us about the importance of, of obtaining these testimonies. Well, I think that
1: um, these, these testimonies are, are so important for a variety of reasons. Virtually every survivor that we have on our program has probably been interviewed extensively uh, for the record, so to speak, and other, for example, most of them Uh, were interviewed through the Spielberg project, uh, the Shoah project, most of them. Here what we are providing is an opportunity for an audience of people visiting the museum to hear a survivor tell their journey, what they went through personally during the Holocaust, during the war, and a little bit about after the war. So I think it's really important that they do that. uh, One, so that people who've never really been exposed stories about the Holocaust, hear it in some cases, I think for the very first time, when they walk into that museum and hear this story. And they're hearing a firsthand account of a person who is alive today, lived through that, and is describing what they experienced. It's certainly for the survivors, and I think for all of us, a way to remember what happened and to never forget. More importantly, in some ways, is to continue to ask questions as to You know, why did this happen in the first place? What brought it about? And I think that's really important for those folks who come to the museum, the majority of whom I really think have had almost no exposure to the Holocaust. And so in some respects between the museum and hearing this personal account, they are hearing something that they're not likely to get almost anywhere else. It's almost not possible to find an opportunity to hear a survivor describe what they personally experienced.
0: How did you decide to
1: do this? Well, I I was given the opportunity to do it um, in 2000. So we've been doing this now 19 years. This is our 19th year of the first person program. A good friend of mine was the director of public programs for the museum. And one day she said to me, I have this idea uh, for a program in which uh, survivors, you know, tell their story before a live audience. And I'm looking for someone to serve as a host for that program. And he asked me if I was interested, and I thought, you know, how could I not be? That sounds just extraordinary. Uh, I would like to do that, and so uh, I'm not sure that I was a natural. I'm not Jewish. I wasn't a Holocaust survivor, a scholar. I'm not a scholar. Uh, so why me? And I think the answer was in part looking for somebody who is good with older people. My career has been in the field of aging. I've done an awful lot of interviewing. Uh, one kind or another uh, both in my background as a journalist but also through my work in aging uh, mostly of an investigative nature uh, of of different kinds of investigations but uh, she said I think you'll just be great you'll be good with folks and um, in a sense you're um, not a blank slate but you're not going to um, correct anything the survivor says you know oh no that couldn't quite have happened that way this was really about them telling their story as they recall it, as they experience it, as they remember it. And so my job really is to guide them through the ability to tell their story in a limited amount of time. Uh, And so uh, the museum agreed to do this on a trial basis for uh, the year 2000. And here we are 19 years later with a a pretty, pretty popular program, I think.
0: The total devastation, six million lives, and yet I'm sure that each story is different. Now, how do you how do you prepare for this kind of, of conversation with a survivor? And, and
1: no question, each story is utterly different in in so many unique ways. It, it's it's incredible how different each story is, even if the framework has similarities—a hidden child, um, or in one of the camps, or uh, escaped on a Kinder transport. But that's the only thing that's really common. Then it's very unique to each of them. Uh, How we prepare for each of our programs, I spend initially, the first time I meet the survivor, I spend a great deal of time, minimally three to four hours, probably more, just trying to learn as much as I can uh, about what they went through. And then I use that to craft a series of questions to guide them through the conversation. And so when we get up on the stage before a live audience, I'm pretty conversant with, um, you know, what they're about to say. And so I, I know, one, where I think they're going. I'm also, in particular, able to help them if they forget a point that they, I know they want to make or something that was really of such significance that they wanted to share that. But in, you know, in the, uh, the stress of being up on stage and being caught up in that and with limited time, you know, I can help them remember that, you know, I'll ask a pointed question about, well, tell me about such and such, because I know they want to speak about it. So for me to be able to do this well, the key is really being prepared in advance when we get up on stage. It's never done where, you know, I'm walking up there with somebody that I I don't know much about.
0: Now we know that for many survivors, for years, they they didn't really share the stories for a variety of reasons. Right. Uh, they were kind of closed uh not only to the world, but but to their own families in, in many cases. Um, but do you find that as the years have passed, um, with the aging of the survivors, that, that more and more want to tell their stories?
1: Certainly those that uh, come to the museum to be part of the museum and therefore get on the first-person program, they definitely now want to tell their story. And you're very right. Um, many of the survivors have recounted to me the 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 many years that they went without sharing it with other folks, in many cases feeling like nobody really wanted to hear that story, not even sharing it all with their families. I've heard a number of survivors uh, um, uh, acknowledge certain sort of um, uh, media events that occurred. You know, certainly Schindler's List is one that cited an earlier program on the Holocaust a few years before that. In a way, gave permission for people to start talking, and so many survivors began starting to tell their story um, in different venues. It might have just been within their own families for the first time. I think the museum, the opening of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has played an incredible role in getting the survivors we work with to want to tell their story. Um, I think they've become uh, so committed, so passionate about the purpose of the museum and recognize that this is, you know, you know, an opportunity that's, that's not going to be around a whole lot longer. It's really f- fascinating to me. I have a gentleman on the program this Thursday. It'll be his first time. He just came to the museum as a volunteer last year, or earlier this year, 2018, and this will be the first time that he has ever publicly spoken about what he went through. He's talked with his family, but he's never talked to an audience before, and he's doing it. And And, and he's just fairly recently retired he worked a really long uh long life retired uh decided that he wanted to actually he he's still trying to find information about whatever what happened to his father he came to the museum for that purpose decided to volunteer and then became active as a survivor and now he's telling his story so there's a lot of different reasons why they step up there for the first time to tell the story wherever it might be but i think um I think now we're, we've had this year five people new to the program, uh, this year, this, at 2018, and I think it's because people realize that um, the survivors, their family members realize there aren't going to be many more opportunities or many more years to be able to get around to doing this. And we still have some volunteers that, though, they, they prefer not to speak publicly in this, this kind of setting at least.
0: Uh, so many interviews over so many years. Are there are there one or two that really stand out?
1: Uh, gosh, they 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 all stand out. Um, every single one of them. I I think um, for me, what what stands out is the is the you mentioned it earlier. Each story is unique. What stands out for me is the. The breadth of, of the horrors that people went through, on so many different fronts, so many different ways, in so many different places, and they're all horrible. I think for most people, of course, you would you would think that somebody who was um, survived a concentration camp or was at Auschwitz uh, and somehow survived that's that's about as awful as you can imagine, but also. A child, you know, who was ripped away from their parents and went into hiding, or uh, somehow got out of the country, but on a Kinder transport, say, but they've lost their parents or they lost the rest of their families. You know, th- the impact of that is so extraordinarily devastating. So they all, um, they're all profound. Um, I did hear one um, from one survivor just very recently who uh, I've I've worked with in the past. Whose description of Auschwitz um, affected me differently than even in the past, even though I've heard her tell her account of going to Auschwitz, but I think um, it might be her own age or the the depth in which she went into what it was like for her as a 13-year-old girl um, arriving in Auschwitz. It was so profound and I think others that were there that had heard her before felt something deeply different even than we've heard in the past that's a recent one but that particular one is is just I can't get it out of my mind it was just so uh, so painful so painful but in a uh, in a in a um, in such a clear clear way
0: I understand what you're saying because you are you're hearing many things you are hearing for the first time, but there are things that you don't expect to hear, and and I guess that was the case with uh, with this with this one. You you probably have been exposed to more of these stories than just about anybody else. Um, what do you take away from?
1: It? I, I I take away a, a, a number of things. I think um, what what still sort of amazes me is that i am no closer to comprehending the enormity of what happened during the holocaust i'm no closer to understanding you know the why i mean i don't know that anybody does but it's just it remains as utterly almost impossible to imagine what was done to holocaust Uh, survivors and to all those who did not survive. Um, So that's one thing I take away. But at the same time, I take away from those that I've gotten to know um, how amazing these people are. Um, Each of these survivors have rebuilt lives. I mean, you know, you think of the metaphor of the phoenix rising out of the ashes, that out of the ashes literally, in many cases, you know they have rebuilt lives they've created families they've created enormous relationships with uh, family members and with others uh, many of them have had unbelievably uh, amazing careers whatever it is that they've done uh, their children are are you know doing great things in so many cases and the other thing that i am taken away is um, the graciousness, the spirit of, of, of these survivors, um, the way that they feel empathy about victims of other forms of genocide. One of the things that we do that I think is just really profound with our program is we have what we call the last word. And that is the cyber, the survivor gets the very last word, kind of a closing comment. It's not part of our conversation. You know, I haven't prepared a question. They just get to say what they want to say. And so many of them now speak about uh, from everything from, you know, to the kids in the audience, you know, don't tolerate bullying, stand up if you see it, to talking about, you know, that what happened to us is happening to people in other places in the world, mentioning Rwanda, mentioning Somalia, mentioning uh, uh, what's happened in uh, uh, Burma or um, Myanmar today. Uh, and, and, And the pain, and even the pain... Uh, This, in the last few weeks, several of their closing remarks have commented on, you know, the recent um, uh, uh, news accounts of children here being ripped away from their parents at the borders, and uh, for survivors, they've said, this brings back feelings of what I experienced as a kid, and this is what we ought not be doing to other humans. And so their humanity is just, that's the most lasting impact on me, is having been through Unbelievable inhumanity that that what they bring is this extraordinary humanity, both with their own families, of course, but to the much larger community, including to our audiences. I think that for me is the um, uh, the most amazing. It's the biggest gift. It's the it's what makes
0: what I do. I think an incredible privilege. As an interviewer, have you been told that your subjects uh, open up? perhaps more easily to you than than to others I have been told that um, I have been told that and I, I, I I'm not sure
1: why um, but I think uh, I think we established a, a pretty darn good rapport and um, I, I think I think they they trust me to they're in good hands with me and um, I, I, I and I, I believe that and um, and more importantly I think the, the people that I work with the survivors believe that and and it's been safe, I think, to open up and share things uh, that they might not have otherwise. Um, and and uh, I'm, I'm just enormously grateful for that.
0: Are you in touch with any of them? I mean, this has been going on for a number of years. Oh, uh, yes. You know, I, they... I mean, I'm, I've, I've got friends. <laughs> They're friends. And, you know, I look forward to when
1: we finish the uh, what we call a season. It runs from mid-March through mid-August. And, and in the off-season, it's my opportunity to, you know, actually – you know, socialize and visit with several. I've been to, uh, I've been to, uh, many different family events, which I, I just love getting invited to. Um, I've even been invited to speak at, um, a couple of funerals, which is pretty, pretty powerful, pretty powerful. So yes.
0: Well, let me, uh, let's conclude really more or less where we began, Bill. Um, you know, when I entered this field more than 40 years ago, um, I would make speeches and, to talk about Holocaust denial in those days, and I would say something like, well, you know, there'll come a day when those people who experience this, who have the tattoos on their arms, who went through this, uh, will will no longer be here to tell that story. Um, we're, we're probably approaching uh, that point, uh, not, not in the too distant future, um, so... What you do uh, is that insurance policy, in terms of remembrance, would you say? I, I would. I would say that I, the fact that we
1: we do these before every person in that room, I think, is going to remember this conversation. Uh, the survivors get amazing letters from people that leave the museum. They go home till someplace in Iowa or Montana or Georgia or wherever and they write letters to the survivor the kids the school kids groups that come and listen to our program so I I think it is an insurance policy in that form plus all of our programs are now uh, uh, videographed so there's a permanent record of all of them uh, that will hopefully last in perpetuity Um, so I think I think it will help uh, it will help be an antidote against deniers but be, beyond deniers, too, I think um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by how many people just, for lack of a better word, are, are ignorant about the Holocaust, just don't know about it. You know, they've not really studied it in school. And so without the survivors for when they have that opportunity to encounter one, um, where are they going to get someone who can say, this happened to me? So... The permanent record from this is going to really matter in the future. I think. Um, uh, I think. Fortunately, the museum does a phenomenal job of working with teachers from across the country, designing courses and curricula and things like that, using our materials to incorporate it into their programs. Hopefully, that will be around for many, many,
0: many years to come. Hopefully. Well, Bill, we're deeply indebted to you, uh, indebted to you, and and to the museum for for the important work. Uh, that you do in this regard, and in all that uh, it does in terms of Holocaust remembrance and, and education. So we thank you for uh, for being there uh, to uh, ask these people about their stories, uh, and for posterity's sake uh, to know that it's there uh, to listen and to learn uh, from from their experience. Uh, and to apply those lessons uh, to the problems that you've outlined uh, that we have today. So thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast today. Please visit our website, benebrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about us. For my guest, Bill Benson, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.